School of Public Service at Boise State. Um, and we're excited to be back for another week, uh, though in uh, tra- uh, tradition of the Big Ten, we're going to start off with the most depressing story possible. Yes, we're going to get progressively less serious as the show goes on, so please hang in there. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's It seems to be our, our trend to really start with morbid stories lately. Uh, this was not wholly morbid, but uh, we are going to talk about uh, yeah. what has been the... the the most, uh, the biggest news uh, item this week, which is uh, the death of, of former President uh, George H. W. Bush, um, which uh, I don't think was a, a total shock for everybody, but it was the the big story. Uh, he's had some health problems lately, so anybody that's been uh, kind of following his, his him in the news wasn't necessarily thrown off by by this story. Um, so let's start with, since we don't have 30 minutes to go through point by point his legacy, what uh, what would you two remember most uh, uh, about the? former or the first uh president bush like what stands out to you most about his legacy you know um for me it's been sort of a strange week because uh, i got you know i really was like a young teenager i think if i'm doing my math right when when he was uh president and so i i don't wasn't very politically aware then and i don't have sort of like an embodied or memoried experience of what he was like as a president and so it feels very sort of intellectual or scholarly to think about his legacy so i What's what's been on my mind this week is really thinking about how um, we process the death of a public leader, sort of as a country, and thinking about how these these sort of two things exist side by side. On the one hand, thinking about one's character and one's humanity and one's relationship with one's loved ones, and on the other hand, maybe their political and policy legacy. So. You know, I've been reading carefully a lot of the postmortem, so to say, of his policy legacies, particularly in the Middle East. But then at the same time, you know, watching the uh, memorial service and watching his son, George W. Bush, give what I thought was just a totally moving eulogy for his father. I mean, I was weeping watching watching that. It had so much, um, you know, humor and love. Um love in it and just reflecting on whether or not you agree with somebody's politics or their policy legacy that these are public servants who really dedicate a lot of their lives to to our country and so i was just really thinking about that this week well it's interesting there's a fairly famous article um in political science i think it's called something along the lines of dead bureaucrats a live public or no Live public, live bureaucrats, dead public servants, and it really talks about and hits on these lines that uh, you know, looking through congressional speakers, that when you know these people are alive, we talk about them in very like even pejorative terms and negative, and we criticize and all this. But when they pass away, we really reflect on their legacy in a very positive sense, and we re- we respect the things they did for their country if we didn't agree with uh, exactly what they did. Um, and so I, I think that lines up uh, exactly. And there's tons of research that kind of supports that. What about you, Corey? Um, you know he. He was a president at an interesting time, obviously. So I was, I'm a bit older than Jen. So I was uh, in, in college when, when the first President Bush was, was president and, and uh, freshman year when the, when the Berlin Wall collapsed. And, and so he, he was at an interesting pivot point in American history. I think what's interesting is that he was, at the time, he was, he was the recent president who was not reelected and sort of regarded as not a successful presidency. And yet, increasingly, historians are rating his presidency more highly. Our colleague, Justin Vaughn, who does a, does a survey every year of historians and presidential scholars, and I think uh, the first President Bush comes in 11th 
uh, among best presidents. And at the time, again, as a non-reelected, um, he's a one-term president. One-term president, mm-hmm. not regarded as a successful presidency. But I think, frankly, history has has served him quite well. Certainly, in comparison to his son or current President Trump, he scores quite a bit more highly. One of the questions that Justin asks is about who are the most polarizing pre- presidents. He's at the very bottom of that list. Um, again, that is not in relation to his passing, but just in general, he was regarded as trying to be a bit of a bridge builder. Um, I think what strikes me is just how out of touch he was with his own party, um, and what sort of I think you know when we look back another forty years from now, uh, sort of an interesting moment in history, not just on the international s- sphere, but I mean, he, on the one hand, he was the the president that that nominated Justice Souter. Uh, he was also the president that nominated Clarence Thomas. Uh, he uh, presided over uh, a presidency that that uh, promoted the Clean Air Act, Clean Water. Um, he he did some things that were very much out of step with today's Republican Party. On the other hand, um, he sort of was the when he ran for president against Michael Dukakis ran the Willie Horton ads. Um, and so it's a really interesting sort of as you see the historical arc of the Republican Party, the role he played in it. I think is a really important one at that at that pivot point in history. Well, and I, I'll remind the listeners that aren't unfamiliar with his resume. Um, prior to being president, he was both director of the CIA, but more interestingly, he was chair of the RNC, um, the Republican National Committee. So in the wake of Watergate, yeah, right after Watergate or d- during the Watergate period. And I think if you look back, uh, particularly with modern presidents, and look at their pre-presidential resumes, I mean, he might be one of the most experienced men that ever served in that role, um, particularly with the diversity of roles and experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm a somewhat in the same boat as Jen, um, even a lesser so. Like, I was a kid when he was president. So I don't, like, have very many... Thank you for, once again, <laughs> reminding me that I'm old. Yeah. Uh, That's all right, my friendly senior. Uh, yeah, so we'll make this quick so Corey doesn't fall asleep in the middle of it because we're not senior. Right. Um, but, you know, so most of my remember or what I know about his presidency is, is looking back retrospectively, you know, as a, a scholar and a scientist. And the the things that I, I remember about that part are, you know, the, the two of the most important catch phrases in modern right thousands right a thousand ray of lights thousand mm-hmm. points of light mm-hmm. thousand points of light <laughs> yeah. sorry and as so i live through this <laughs> I can correct. And yeah. read my lips no new taxes mm-hmm. right i mean those are and so if you don't remember anything else i think people remember those because those were such important catchphrases that have gone on uh but i'll say like in his post-presidency like what i remember about george bush mostly is his work with President Clinton, right? right? Is his philanthropy, all the things that he did post-presidency are the things that stick out to me most in my mind, but those are the things that happened when I was becoming an adult and becoming more politically like knowledgeable. But it doesn't, I think the results of that survey that Justin does are really interesting, and it does make me think, you know, not that political scientists and historians don't pay attention to politics and policy, but it does make me think that at the end of the day, it might be character mm. that ends up shaping how we view some of these historical figures, and that history may be willing to forgive quite a bit um, and we all probably forget quite a bit as well but sort of I think what's interesting about the way he's being eulogized this week is he's he's being portrayed as a, as a man of character and as somebody who was willing to admit when he was wrong I think his track record on racial politics is a very good example right. where he opposed he, the Civil Rights Act yes he opposed the Civil Rights Act and years later apologized for that and mm-hmm. said that he was wrong he uh, regretted the Willie Horton ad um, and you know I think is famous for saying that the worst part of politics is the the election process, right? right? That's the price you pay for being a public servant. So I um, uh, I think for me that that's an interesting thing to reflect on in our own political moment when it feels like um, 
there are lots of figures where um, character seems less important at, at this particular moment, and will be interesting to see which of those sort of characteristics survive history and which don't. Well, I mean, we found that with a lot of presidents, right? The, the farther we get from their presidency, the more popular they're getting. We're even finding that with uh, George W. Bush, who left office and was not necessarily Which all... is such a strange thing. So now we're talking about a president I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, he's he's become more popular in the yes. years past. And the same thing has honestly happened with Obama, even though it's not been that long. I mean, people are, mm-hmm. are focusing, and I guess when you kind of step outside the fray and the day-to-day, you know, kind of controversies, it's a lot easier to focus on those big picture things. And I, I think um, maybe that's a discussion for another show is the post-presidency life um, and how a lot of these presidents have managed to rehab their image and, and really focus and do a lot of good outside the presidency. I will say that I found it salutary to see the those presidents, the former presidents in line at that memorial this week. You sort of had Jimmy Carter at one end and, and former president and um, uh, Donald Trump at the other end. That, Appropriately uh, so. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> perhaps. Um, anyway, that was it was nice to see that mm-hmm. there that sort of um, sense of connection at that at that funeral, however uh, short lived it may be. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some state politics and in particular what's happening in Wisconsin. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. You're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond. Welcome back to the uh, Big Ten after that short break. Um, so we're going to move on to uh, something uh, something a, a little different. Um, talking about uh, state politics uh, in Wisconsin, where there's some interesting things going on in the state house. And our resident expert on Wisconsin, <laughs> uh, Dr. Cook, is going to fill us in. Well, maybe the the way of, of talking about some of the changes in Wisconsin, uh, what's going on sort of politically in the state house there. Um, actually, you know, to continue on the conversation about about President Bush, one of the uh, reminiscences about his uh, time as president was the letter that he wrote to President Clinton and the transition from a president, first President Bush to President Clinton. Obviously, they over time they were rivals. They ran against each other. Over time, they became personal friends. But um, you know, the New York Times published the the letter that he wrote uh, to President Clinton, who was taking office, and said, "You know, I wish you nothing but success. Um, we are not experiencing the same thing in Wisconsin, uh, and uh, this is not unlike what happened uh, two years ago in North Carolina. But in Wisconsin, uh, we have a change in administration from a from the Republican uh, to to the Democratic." Uh, to Tony Evers has taken over as, as the governor of Wisconsin, and the state legislature, which remains in Republican hands, has just passed a series of laws weakening the governor's power. Uh, today, um, the the uh, uh, current governor of Wisconsin appointed 82 officials to uh, uh, appointed 82 new officials to offices, uh, some of which had been vacant for more than a year. Uh, when he himself had been elected governor, he pleaded with the then Democrat uh, to not appoint any new officials in the last two months because he said that will hamstring my administration and make it difficult for me to govern. But as he's leaving office, he's made 82 appointments, including some judgeships. Uh, the, the, the state Senate uh, confirmed a number of those without any public hearing or consideration of their applications, and they just passed some laws that uh, limit the governor's power around economic development, around um, uh, uh, enforcing federal laws. Um, they made it illegal for the governor to ban guns in the state capitol without legislative approval. And they limited the number of employees that work in the governor's office. Yeah, so a variety of things, obviously, clearly partisan and designed to hamstring the, 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 the uh, newly installed 
uh, governor. So what do we make of that? Well, it's uh, something I've been sort of trying to get some hot takes on. <laughs> and um, I was drawn to a comment from Seth Maskett, who's a political scientist at the University of Denver, who who um, writes for the monkey cage. And he sort of quoted himself from a couple of years ago saying that increasingly in state politics, Republicans seem to hate Democrats more than they love democracy. I'm paraphrasing there. And you know he's doing some work with some fellow political scientists to see if there are examples of it happening on the Democratic side and aren't, they're not finding those examples. But we are seeing increasingly um, in state politics, this sort of we're going to take down the whole ship rather than let you have power. And I think we see it with gerrymandering. I think we're potentially seeing it um, at the federal level in some cases as well with things like the nuclear option, which maybe we see examples of that on both sides mm -hmm. of the aisle more at that level. Um, but I think it's a really concerning trend for sort of the stability of the republic. Yeah, I saw a uh, quote today uh, from a Republican leader in the uh, Wisconsin legislature uh, that said something along the line. I mean, you know, the several comments there, but the, the general tone was that we're not going to let them use the government to take, we're not going to let them take back the government. Uh, essentially, like, asserting, like, the Republicans had, an, like, a right to their partisanship in the legislature, and they weren't going to cede that. I mean, completely ignoring the outcomes of the elections, that somehow the Republicans had a right a monopoly over that and it was just not fair that the democrats were going to try to take power back um and so i just again to, to try like just completely devoid of the democracy that we're supposed to have here um and just like oh wait we're we have an obligation to be republicans to lead this government not that the democracy or the elections matter yeah so yeah i think that's exactly right i think what's interesting to me is that um there's a tacit admission in this that the the legislature needs to restore its own power now to check the governor, which you know, when Scott Walker had been governor for eight years, there was no intention of checking the power of Scott Walker. So part of what we're getting at, I think, is the, the failure in, in, in states, and, and this is not just in Wisconsin, um, and it's not just on the Republican side, where the state legislature does not view its role as one of oversight or being a co-equal branch when in line with the party of the governor. But as soon as you have a governor of another party come in, you say, well, all we're doing is trying to re rebalance the power between the legislature and the governor. Frankly, the legislature in Wisconsin was not particularly concerned about the relative balance of power when Scott Walker was governor. Now they are. I tend to like legislatures. I'm like the legislature as a co-equal branch, I'm actually more disappointed in legislatures that fail to perform that duty in, uh, in unified government in order to carry the water of a governor than I am disappointed that they now see the side of restoring the balance. I, I wish they had, had cared about restoring the balance eight years ago. So it's, it feels like these are two different things, though. There's one where we don't uh, sort of perf perform, where legislatures don't perform that oversight function, which is one thing. That's sort of maybe a passive refusal to one's responsibility as a co-equal branch. But then there's actively acting in the way the Wisconsin legislature is to make it difficult for the other branch to actually sure. execute their responsibility. But for example, should the should the Wisconsin legislature have an equal number of appointments on the State Economic Development Commission? That was one of the changes yeah. they made. I would argue they should. They should have eight years ago. Um, they do it now in order to hamstring the Democratic governor. Um, but again, but I mean, it's a very partisan and cynical game. Um, uh, you know, I think, frankly, hamstring governors because legislatures are uh, representative of the population in a different way and they have a different role. 
if that's done across the board systematically, I don't have a problem with it. It's for political gain yeah. that starts to trouble me. And so things like that where they limit the number of appointments, um, that's just a pure partisan power grab as opposed to the, the language that's been used by legislature is, hey, look, we're just trying to restore the balance. Like, really, you waited uh, seven years and 11 months to, to decide that there was an imbalance <laughs> right. between the governor and the legislature. That's a fascinating timing that you just nearly discovered. And as a result, they're now going to pass through a whole bunch of laws that haven't been vetted in a, and, and get through a bunch, a bunch of appointments of people who haven't had public hearings. Well, and certainly, uh, I think you, you mentioned North Carolina earlier. They, they've done did something so, uh, similar uh, a few years ago. What I think is interesting is these are popping up, I mean, clearly in the very polarized the swing states where there's a lot of interstate competition between parties. But you're not seeing this in every state, right? Because uh, I would say there's a much more even balance of power between the governor and the legislature when you're in solidly Republican or solidly Democratic states because I guess the fear that if you give a little leeway to the other party or you let them win or that you know your 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 candidate loses a little bit that you're not it's not going to affect the next election cycle. So to say that uh, maybe to say this another way, like in Wisconsin, I wonder how much of this is if the legislature was afraid if they get a check Scott Walker, it was going to hurt them in the next election cycle, possibly hurting his presidential aspirations, right? And the same thing going in North Carolina, um, that it's much easier for them to look at this as uh, as basically those, those partisan kind of cynical like how do we win more seats later rather than actually looking at it like how do we manage government in an effective way. And whether there's any concern about public sort of retribution, right? So does the does the general public look at this and say, "Hey, look, we just we just voted in this election. Um, we're going to take this out on the on the Republicans in the legislature," or does the public say, "Well, it's part of the game of politics, and or the seats are so gerrymandered it doesn't matter"? But this just strikes me as incredibly short-sighted. And as you, um, Jen, you mentioned the the nuclear option around filibusters, very similar in that. You can see where the end game is, and it's not good for either party, and it's certainly not good for for, for quality governance or democracy. And yet, um, is is this likely to lead to anything other than Democrats doing the same thing to the next Republican governor in Wisconsin? Yeah, at the end of the day, you have to wonder if the real losers here are just voters who end up feeling alienated and even more cynical about about politics. But you know, we see in a again, we see lots of this type of short sightedness that's gone on in the Senate in the last several years, right? And so maybe it's just trickling down to the state level. I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, he is he has done this time and time again, where he has come out and just been like, "Oh, we have to do this. It's about democracy." And then when the tables get turned, I mean, he makes the exact opposite argument. I mean, it's almost like Mitch McConnell forgets what he said the week before, or that he thinks the American people have forgotten it. But he is contradicting himself so many times, and so I'm sure. In a few years, if a Republican governor gets elected, the state legislature is going to try to redo that, or they're going to, or they're going to be up in arms about all this. So, I mean, that that kind of short-sightedness, that kind of contradiction, um, I just find it to be very interesting. I mean, it just seems like, you know, where are your long-term plans here? Like, why? What are you thinking about, you know, ten years down the line, or are you thinking that when you're making these type of choices? So these are the kinds of things that keep us up at night as folks who study <laughs> politics and policy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk about things that might be keeping you up late at night. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Tent. Hi, this is Bree, psychic death witch. And this is Emily, regular witch. <laughs> this is Taco Cat. And we're Taco Cat. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Boise 89.9. 
and 93.5 FM Community Radio for Boise and beyond. We're going to lighten things up a little bit in this segment. We started off by talking about the passing of George H.W. Bush. In the second segment, we talked about um, state politics, in particular in Wisconsin. Uh, Something that caught my eye this week was a study that was published in the online magazine The Conversation, which uh, we're all familiar with because they often help scholars like us translate their work to uh, broader audiences. But this piece in particular um, was a group of, I think it was psychologists who were trying to figure out what is leading to a sort of epidemic of a lack of sleep among teenagers. And I have two teenage girls, so this is something I think about a lot. They're pretty addicted to their cell phones and neither one are super sleepers. So I read this with a great deal of interest. And the study, they studied a bunch of different factors that might affect why teenagers aren't getting enough sleep. And my money, of course, was on that school starts too early. I think we probably all agree. (laughs) Trying to get teenagers out the door and in class and learning by 8 a.m. is crazy. But what the study actually found is that the biggest thing that impacts teenagers getting sleep is the quality of their bedding, which I thought was fascinating. And it made me think about my husband, who's a high school teacher. And it made me think about him because a lot of his students um, have what we might think of as challenging home environments, where some of them may not have beds to sleep in, um, or they may be sleeping in their cars. Um, And who knows what the quality of bedding is. But for teenagers, having a comfortable, warm place to sleep with like nice sheets or a comforter or something like that's really important. So that got me thinking about mattresses and um, why mattresses are such a big deal now. So I wanted to hear from both of you about your ideal sleeping environment. Do you like it really dark? Do you have white noise machines? Does your mattress matter? Do you have a soft pillow or a hard pillow? I want to hear about these details. Well, (laughs) so I'll say uh, I had I had a mattress that I bought in grad school and used for years, uh, and then I got married over the summer, as y'all know. And so, one of and the you found th- out that your mattress was totally subpar. Yes, uh, my wife teaches me <laughs> many things, and one of them was that how like the squalor condition I was living in with my mattress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, we one of the very generous gifts that we got for the wedding was a expensive bedstead and mattress. And uh, I'm gonna say, like, I should have done this years ago. Like, uh, we got like the the pillow top it's expensive it's big. so without saying which brand it was luke did you like go to an actual store yes we went to you a did? store we laid on the mattresses actually because i'm extremely cheap and i'll admit that like oh i was like oh my god we're not buying any of these mattresses like oh this is the floor model so it's 40 percent off it's like sold let's get but you need to give me your millennial card back because you're supposed to buy your mattress online and it comes in a box and you pop it open and it just unfolds onto your bed <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't trust that stuff. I feel like uh, it's kind of weird. Okay, um, I, okay. Here's the other thing, and I, I, I said this earlier. So with all those online mattress stores and all, like, the, the mattress stores that are really at every corner, I don't believe Americans buy enough mattresses to support that economy. So I'm skeptical of all of them, and I feel like there's something nefarious going on. Okay, uh, okay. 
you know, cough, organized crime, like step up front. Like I feel like in a couple of years there's just gonna be like a huge documentary that just blows the top off all of this. And I'm gonna be like, I knew it. All right. Well, we have some details about that, but really quickly, do you sleep with one pillow or two? Uh, I sleep with one pillow. My wife sleeps with like 19 pillows. And so. is it a soft pillow or a hard pillow? A uh, soft pillow. And then are you like a hot sleeper or a cold sleeper? Cold sleeper. You like it to be, uh, you like lots of blankets on you or? Yeah, for the most part. Okay. I okay. like when the room's cold, but I'm wearing, I'm going to throw this out here. Do you know about Clemson's football program's nap room? Oh, are we going to talk about sports? Yeah. So Clemson, they built a new uh, football facility and they have a nap room, right? It's yes. dark. They keep it at 68 degrees mm-hmm. and there's a nap. And so supposedly at the, the big football programs, they go. say, one of the like more so than nutrition or anything else one of the things they have is people getting enough sleep so they make them take naps during the day and they really harp on that i, I bet believe, they got that from mariana huffington i think if we get a new building for the school of public service there'll likely be a nap some room. nap pots i think that's a good idea I'm okay what about that. what about you Corey? do you like a firm mattress have you have no preference. preferences i i don't what? sleep very much and i oh. uh, my family knows i can sleep anywhere anytime just give me just give me a minute and I will be asleep. It doesn't matter. Train. Really? Train, so you couch. don't sleep much like a regular person, no. but you will you're like a cat napper. Like I, I, totally I don't, I don't have a lot of time to sleep during the evening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, give me five minutes on a you know, like a movie, mm-hmm. sleep time. Mm-hmm. I don't watch movies. I, mm-hmm. I'm asleep, so it doesn't. But I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. So this is uh, the life of the de- of a dean. Everybody is c- completely horrible. But yeah, the, the awful, the awful squalid conditions that that Luke is used to. All those are fine. Yeah, really? futon, sure. Yes, yeah, no preference. Yes, I'm, for an old man, I can sleep anywhere. Yes. <laughs> My grandpa falls asleep during movies too. There you go. Because I was gonna say no. I'm... So I am your exact polar opposite <laughs> in that conditions must be just right, and I spend hundreds of dollars, literally a horrifying amount of money, to ensure that conditions are perfect. Like I am one of those people who bought a mattress online, popped it out of a box, and I'm I love it. I will evangel. I won't tell you what brand it is because we're on. You know, it's community radio, so I'm not advertising, but it's fantastic. Mm. And I'm it super pops pick- out of a box. Yeah, you like it comes in a, a box that's maybe three by, you know, four feet or something. You open it up, it's shrink wrapped, mm-hmm. and it you open the shrink wrap and it like like a marshmallow, right? It puffs. So it's pops not in your spring because obviously that no, no, it's, no, uh, no. Okay, and we could talk about why that is. And then sheets, awesome. I'm super. And also, do you sleep with a top sheet? Or you don't care. You don't, don't even need I mean, sheets. Sheet, yeah. Like you know. could sleep on a fruit roll-up. You wouldn't sure, care. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Jen, about the blow your, do I you slept know on my dog. I mean, it doesn't matter. Oh, sure. Lord yeah. Corey. No preference. Yeah. Do you know about gravity blankets? Oh, I own two, Luke. Okay. I own yeah, two sorry, types gravity of gravity blankets. blankets. Yeah. So they're like weighted blankets. Uh-huh. Yeah. So well, we got one for the wedding. That's actually it, a not gravity blanket. Like yeah. The actual blanket is weighted by gravity. You need a gravity blanket, sir. Yeah, especially they like make you feel all secure. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay was waking up uh, kind of sore, and it was because the gra- it was so like she didn't have enough upper body strength to lift the blanket off of her. So we had to take a break from that one. <laughs> she is a, she is a, a tiny gal. Wait, wait, so so I think they were sort blanket. of developed for folks who have like sensitivity disorders or maybe you're on the autism spectrum, yeah. and it kind of calms your nervous system. I don't so think I'm weighted, on the autism it's weighted, spectrum, it's but a weighted blanket. yes. 
So yeah, so I have I have my no top. My preference is no top sheet. I like it to be super cold, which drives my husband insane because he prefers it to be warm. Mm. And I like my gravity, my gravity blanket. But the reason I think it's interesting to talk about mattresses is that I don't remember this ever being something people talked about until the last few years when there's certain online mattress companies like Casper or Lisa sort of just emerged onto the cultural scene and the sleep deprived nature of most of the people in our nation has become like a public health mm. issue. And Corey, maybe you're the poster child for this. <laughs> it sounds like we need to do an intervention uh, for you. But there, this is a really big deal with these online mattress companies now. And you have, um, there's a really interesting story that was published on Fast Company that talks about how some online mattress companies have been suing mattress reviewers for putting posting bad reviews online. It is a whole serious mafia-like industry now, Luke. So it makes me wonder if, in fact, your conspiracy theories about mattress companies are right. All going to the mattresses from... Uh, um, sorry, is that, is that too dated a reference no, from no, the no, old no, guy? No, no. Oh, man. Okay. Wow. Yeah, no, but uh, I mean, that's, a, that's a larger trend, right, with uh, people getting mad about their online reviews. There's been several uh, lawsuits associated with that. I remember reading about one hotel where a stayer like, criticized them, and then they... Uh, something in the hotel policy was like, oh yeah, if you criticize us online, we can Apple charge hotel. you some amount of money. And so like they charge, like, and so there, I, uh, every once in a while you see crazy stories about this, but. Uh, well, yeah. and you might remember that uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt got in trouble for trying to get a Trump hotel mattress. So right. I'm just saying there's something having to do with mattresses, people. It's in the air. This is a public affairs show, so we try to give you all the juiciest material. Right. So uh, on that note, I think we'll probably wrap things up under a gravity blanket uh, and I hope that you'll tune in to the big tent next week we'll see you then that was amazing <laughs>